Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts. Please remember with each topic we discuss that your horse is an individual, so make sure you're getting professional advice before you implement any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are talking about a very interesting um, CPD event that we went to virtually, of course, last night. And it was by Ruth Morgan, and it was her latest research in the field of equine obesity. And Ruth is a vet in the UK. She graduated from Cambridge University in 2006, and she's done various different um, research papers and looked into different areas within the equine industry. She's done a PhD in equine endocrinology then at the University of Edinburgh in 2012. And she works for the University of Edinburgh Equine Endocrine Clinic. So she sees specialist equine cases coming into her with endocrine problems. And that includes things like um, Cushing's, you know, insulin problems um, and overweight ponies, which is what we see a lot of the time with those. So very interesting talk. Um, Nancy, you were the one that kind of suggested it. And I think there was just so much in it that was just very simple, practical advice. Like I felt like I came away with a whole toolkit for what to do with ponies going forwards, because ponies really are the ones that are going to end up with these problems. It, it was amazing. And it was so good to hear her corroborate what we say on the podcast about seasonal weight loss, about exercise. And we did an episode on equine metabolic syndrome in fat ponies. And if they were exercised just three to four days a week regularly, even though their insulin levels might have been somewhat high, it would, was still in the normal range, but a normal high reading. Um, they never did progress into um, laminitis or higher insulin levels. So exercise and movement and not overfeeding is so important. And I think one thing that I took away from it, I'm always hesitant to feed lower quality hay, especially in the winter because of impaction possibilities. And I make sure they drink plenty of water, but she made me feel so much better about giving my Welsh pony a portion of first cutting hay that may be a little browsy um, and not to worry about it, that they'll eat it and they'll lose weight, but they'll still have the correct amount of fiber in their system. So it just made me feel better. I'm Ed and I grow hay on our farm. So we have good quality hay, but the little pony just puts on too much weight with good quality hay. So it kind of made me feel so much better that I give her a lower quality hay uh, mixed with high quality. And that's, I thought that was one of the really interesting practical things she said you can do that if you do have an overweight horse or pony, 
and they're eating their hay really rapidly, then, you know, mix it with something that's more low quality or even mix it half and half with straw because they did a study in horses and they fed them half hay, half straw, and they saw no colic issues, no impactions, no problems with any of the horses. And the idea is the horse will pull out all the nice hay bits first, but that is so natural to a horse to do that, to be selective. Um, so that's still kind of promoting their um, their natural behaviors as well in a stabled environment. And then once they finish pulling out all the nice haze, they will start to eat the straw. And that way you're just trickle feeding them for hours instead of having your horse, you know, wolf it down in a half an hour and is then in the stable for eight hours you know, having nothing to eat through the night because that's when you're going to have more problems. And even when she said, and I was like, this is so practical and I never would have thought of it. Hang the hay net from the middle of the stall. Like, I thought that was just made so much sense. The horse has to work harder to get the hay out. They can't pin it against a wall. You know, it kind of bounces back and forth. And um, so just try and slow them down in different ways. And even soaking the hay, I was really surprised because that's something that I think you kind of take for granted. And I think it is something that different um, stables will have like their own protocols on and things like that, like whether you soak your hay or not. But the amount of sugar it reduces in the hay was impressive. So Ruth did recommend soaking the hay for eight hours if possible. Um, before feeding it. Yeah. And um, I know that does reduce the sugar content, but when it comes to these um, easy doers, as we call them, um, they can eat two to two and a half percent of their body weight in, you know, dry matter in just a matter of six hours. So I think mm -hmm. they monitored their that one pony where they hung the hay net in the center of the stall. And within three hours, he ate 1% of his body weight. So, you know, they're like little vacuum cleaners. Yeah. <laughs> they said that, um, I think they said out in pasture that if you say you have ponies that are overweight. So you think, all right, I'll keep them in the stables and I'll only let them out for three hours a day. That ponies are so adaptive to their circumstances that they will eat their eight hours of grazing in the three hours because they'll realize that's what's happening. Well, and then um, she had a really interesting calculation that it was simplified, but it really made sense to me is that a 450 kilogram horse should get about 15,000 kcals a day. Well, one kilogram of grass pasture is equal to 4,000 kilocals, you know, give or take. And 5% um, of body weight in 24 hours, if that horse is on pasture 24 hours, they will consume 90,000 kilocals. I mean, that's four times, you know, four, them six times what they're supposed to. So no wonder these easy doing horses get so heavy and there is an obesity problem worldwide. It's no wonder why I have never had to supplement my Connemara pony. Uh, she is like 20 years old. Well, what did she say? Like 
40% of Scottish ponies were overweight. So that did not make me feel so bad that I worked so hard to keep my pony. Yeah. You know, she's, I just say she's well sprung ribs, but I have to work at it because she does have a propensity to gain weight. And so I think we just have to realize if you have one of these Welsh ponies, Shetland ponies, uh, miniatures, they have a thrifty genetic propensity where they're going to gain weight. So we have to make sure we give them the exercise that they need uh, given for everything they take in. And the one time that I think it applies stop trusting yourself when you look at your horse because (laughs) she showed all these different pictures of horses and they had people like guess you know well not even guess you have to body condition score them so you look at the horse and you say whether it's overweight or it's not and she found in the horses that were morbidly obese about 97 percent of people got it correct so if it's really really obvious they're overweight or really skinny people will get it right But most people thought that ponies that were like edging on the obese side were actually fine. They thought they were in good condition. I think I've been in that group before. (laughs) But um, also another interesting thing she brought out is the genetic determinant on obesity in horses and people. And um, genes determine being overweight, even eating too much because they're driven to fatten up for winter and then keep eating. Um, And also uh, some horses have a less efficient um, way to metabolize food, which would be thoroughbreds who tend to be called having leaky guts, but ponies don't have that metabolism. And then also all these genes determine the consequences of obesity, which is your insulin dysregulation, your laminitis, even other lamenesses and arthritis because they're considered inflammatory illnesses. Mm -hmm. And that inflammation is obesity, that adiposity distribution. And did you see the ultrasound she showed of that uh, abdomen of that one horse, the amount of adipose fat, I would have never thought a horse could have that much in their abdomen. Do you know what I will say that I've realized um, just from working in the veterinary industry is we would get dogs in all the time to be spayed. So like a routine neuter procedure, the dog comes in and to be honest, you'd see it mostly with small dogs but they would look like they were a fine body condition score. And when we'd open them up to remove the uterus, it would just be layers of fat in the abdomen. And that's when we'd kind of be like, oh, well, actually, you know, they could do with trimming up a little bit because you would just be going through all this adipose tissue. So it would really surprise you, even when you're like, okay, you know, they're fine, they're in okay condition they could be carrying that extra fat and the body does recognize that as an inflammation response, as Nancy said. So, you know, if you've something like arthritis where you've got an inflamed joint and then your body's like 
basically recognizing the fat as being an inflammation as well. That's firing off so many signals, you know, and it becomes this vicious cycle of not being able to get the pain under control and you can't get the inflammation under control. Yeah. And then also it can affect fertility of horses. So broodmares and and when you're breeding horses, you want to make sure um, they're not fat. They tend to have problems foaling if they do, you know, rank in that obesity uh, range. And then they retain more fluid, which is never good, especially around their heart. And then just overall poor performance. And I thought it was really intuitive that she mentioned that it's not always the fat appearing horses that have equine metabolic syndrome. Like Kate said, with the dogs, I mean, horses can appear thin, but have these patches of adipose fat, like at the tail head on the shoulder, maybe have a crusty neck, yet you can feel their ribs. So um, I thought it was wonderful that she said equine metabolic syndrome can all be reversed. And that gives us so much hope because it tends to be an epidemic um, for obese horses. And she said as well, which I thought was brilliant, is that you know, people do worry about supplementing their horses and are they getting the correct nutrients in the grass or in the feed? And she said she sees more horses put down because of laminitis, because they're overweight, Mm -hmm. than she does with horses that are insufficient in anything. She said it's very rare to see a horse come in with an insufficiency from pasture. And that even if you think the grass isn't great, it's probably absolutely fine. Um, And she was quite a stickler on that. And I liked that because she explains, like, if you look at Shetland ponies, you know, in the Highlands in Scotland, they're on these really rough and um, kind of gorsey heather pastures. They're, it's not luscious grass that they're eating. And they manage to put on enough weight to get through the winter. And in the winter, they have snowfall, really heavy in some areas, and they can still graze through the snow. They still learn how to do it. They still get enough grass. They don't need any supplementation. They don't need any rugs. They just get by. Yeah, it that really was an eye opener for me because I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a theory that said when grass is under stress, it has a higher sugar amount. So then that makes you leery that you don't want your horses out eating this grass stubble. But she kind of blew that theory out the window last night because it just made me feel better that if I see my horses out grazing in the middle of winter, they're fine. Just leave, yeah. especially the pony, leave them alone. That you know, she said it is, they're not going to get enough of that stubble to create a high sugar situation. And that just made me feel better because I always thought different. Yeah. Cause she said you're, what you're going to end up doing is taking them off that grass that you think has a high sugar content, which it may have a higher sugar content than other grass, mm-hmm. but then you're going to put them in a stable and you're going to feed them concentrates and hay. Right. So you've then basically taken them off their fruit and veg and you're going to supplement them with like McDonald's instead yeah. to try and make up for it. 
Yeah, and I think it was wise that she also said we've got to balance our rations. You balance everything with your pasture, what they're getting, and then what you're feeding in the stable, and don't overfeed. That's the main thing. And I think so many people don't even do a ration calculation. And each horse needs to have their own ration calculation done because each one metabolizes things differently. And she did say, and Nancy, I'm sure you've talked about using this before, but to use a, a protein balancer. Yes, it's a um, just a balancer for horses that don't really need grain. And uh, there's so many available in the United States. I would just tell people, watch the iron content, and just look at what's in each one because so many of them um, have different amounts of these minerals and kind of coordinate it with your hay and what that analysis is. And if you don't do a hay analysis, you can go to Equi Analytical and you can get an average analysis for your part of the country and your type of hay too. And she did say, reach out to your vet, you know, because they can help you plan on how to pasture your horse, even if you need help, if your horse is prone to being overweight um, and do look up doing wobble tests where you yeah. essentially shake their fat <laughs> to see where it wobbles and um, doing body condition scores, just taking measurements on different areas of the body and weighing them if possible. But what I thought was great was some of them. Um, the management techniques she was saying because I've seen grass muzzles before but never have I had to use one and she was saying you know when people at the end were asking questions if you have a horse that is overweight and they are out to pasture particularly these ponies that are going to eat enough grass like they will make sure they're eating more than their body weight in it and um, that that grazing muzzle has to be on 24 7 when they're in the pasture yeah. she said if you can put them in an arena for a couple hours then they get a break from it she said otherwise they have to wear it and it actually doesn't stress the horse it's more it stresses the owner that the horse has to wear it but she said like it is the bigger kind of tragedy is letting them get overweight and getting these preventable conditions and then you know losing a horse from something like that so using those grazing muzzles and um, even I loved the setup that she showed a picture of where you can kind of try and section off. Now, it depends on how much land you have to work with. And there are loads of books on pasture management. Jane Myers has one um, that a listener had recommended. And we've had a read, myself and Nancy. And then, Nancy, you've read another. Can you remember the name off the top of your head of the one you read? Oh, sure. It's Horse Keeping on a Small Acreage facility design and management and it's by cherry hill and uh, she does quite a few books on farm management and i had used this book to build our farm and i think one of the main important things of pasture management is not to overcrowd your pastures and to um kind of take into consideration the lay of the land because you don't want to get too much erosion, too much damage to your vegetation and let it really become established before you put horses out on it. 
And Ruth was saying last night, if you have the space to be able to do this, then within a pasture, you could have essentially grazing pockets created and then have walkways between them. So the horses actually have to walk to get to the next kinds of pocket for grazing. And so it just makes them do a little bit more work than standing in one position, you know, just mowing all around them. And in the picture she had, there was like those um, water troughs kind of well not even a water trough but you know what are they called Nancy well they're on jumping um they're kind of like a um water jump would look yeah you know I mean but even putting in something like that so the horse has to you know like figure out navigate around it and that's all environmental enrichment as well to them yeah I I know there's a um I don't know kind of a pasture protocol over here called um, paradise pastures and they implement uh, rock walking on rocks getting to grazing areas and more of a natural migration through the day now I have a 10 acre pasture and I have a, a dry area or sacrifice area where they tend to come up and sleep in and they're not out 24 hours they're out eight to ten hours a day and then they have a natural grazing pattern that they do every day they start in the same place work their way around go to the bathroom in certain places and then they don't graze there but it's a constant pattern that you can see over and over so if you do have that same situation and you want to improve your pasture, what you could do is take soil samples from those different areas and get those to an extension office to be analyzed by a lab. And that will help you see what, what you're missing if you are getting a little low in vegetation. And if you are interested, um, Ruth does different talks. Um, I don't know when her next one that's kind of open to everyone is because I'm sure she does ones that are more um, scientific or veterinary based but definitely just give her a google Ruth Morgan um, really really interesting and she's got a wealth of knowledge I do know that on the webinar vet.com um, it says that she's got a webinar coming up in April and that's on equine endocrine disease I don't know if that is kind of targeted more at veterinary professionals or if it is open to everyone, but it's worth having a look at. Um, and actually, yeah, she had two, but I just realized they were in January. So um, they've passed. So <laughs> the one in April, anyways, worth having a look at if you're interested in it. And yeah, it was really, really enjoyable. She's a great speaker and, and so informative. Um, so that that they would like to see her again you know or be able to listen to her and her thoughts again so um we did have uh, before we end today we had our first message recorded by a listener and uh it was mailed into our homepage. so she will go ahead and play that and then we will respond to it Hey, Nan, I just listened to your podcast on male versus female handlers. 
you know, the reactions that um, horses have toward the different sexes. I was just wondering if it could be applied to, you know, other animals that are handled uh, in some way by male or females. I wonder if there's like other studies that have been done with maybe cows, pigs, you know, animals like sheep that I know they have different levels of intelligence and all that, but you wonder if there's uh, that difference between uh, male and female handlers. That's it. And uh, I will say there has been research done uh, regarding other livestock and other animals in relation to sex handlers. And um, the one paper that I did find that was in that paper that we analyzed uh, last week, it's a um, paper by Kid et al. It's 2017. And it's the sex differences in the herding styles of working sheepdogs and their handlers. And it appeared in that paper, female handlers work their dogs through certain elements of a course in a field trial. And they were able to work certain sections of the course so much faster than their male counterparts. So there's one, that study entailed 22 females and 38 males. There was even um, another study that was done in cattle and it was showing that in dairy cows, if you basically, if you were a bit more gruff and you were not as friendly when you were handling them, a bit more aggressive, then they actually had a lower milk yield than the cows that were treated properly and were handled in um, a more kind of approachful and relaxed way. Can you remember the what that study was, Nancy? Yeah, it's by um, Weiblinger et al. And it was a 2002 study. And it was the relationship between attitudes, personal characteristics and behavior of stock people and subsequent behavior and production of dairy cows. So that's really interesting how those cows were kind of like, you don't treat me well, no milk for you. Uh, I remember once, um, so when I was doing like my large animal placements, talking to this guy that ran an agricultural farm and he said that what they kind of brought in in the meat factories was if there was any marks on the meat, you lost money. So you didn't get paid as well for it. So he said what that kind of translated back to was when you're trying to get the cows on the trailer, you're not going to hit them, which they were doing in the past, you know, like using these hollow, light plastic metal pipes to kind of smack them to get them to go onto this trailer, but they were actually damaging the meat. Um aside from all the other, you know, like all opinions aside on the meat industry and how that works and things like that. But he, he took a totally different approach and he was like, you have to actually just be kind. And, you know, if one cow doesn't go on, what they were doing was taking every cow off and trying to encourage the one that was reluctant to go to the front and then herd them back on again. So just being more welfare friendly in how they're handling them. I think, um, 
I think overall, that's what it's all about, regardless of male or female. I had a, um, I worked for an, an older trainer, such a good horseman. And he came to my farm and for lunch one day and one of our horses that he had trained heard his voice and he was, you know, a 10 acre pasture. They were pretty far out there. He heard this trainer's voice and came running to the gate to see him. And you could just see the recognition in that horse's eyes. And you could tell he really appreciated our enjoyed seeing that man again. And it just was amazing. So I also have a great vet who's somewhat of a big guy. He's tall and every one of my horses respond to him in a good way. So regardless of male or female, I think probably it's comes down to mannerisms and time spent, welfare considerations and empathy and compassion. I think that's what it it comes down to. But thank you, um, Dr. Brown, for sending in the voice note because it was absolutely lovely. And um, you can do that on the Anchor page. So the link, I'm sure the link for Anchor comes up even on Spotify as well, doesn't it, Nancy? You know, I don't know because I have access to the homepage, but I'm sure it does. Uh, You can go to our homepage and it's conversations in equine science at anchor.fm. And you should be able to hit the message button and leave us a message. Now, we will play it on the show. If you don't want us to play it, be sure and let us know. But uh, in this instance, she uh, wanted us to be able to uh, play her question and she enjoys our podcast. And that's always good to know when people are enjoying it. Definitely. Well, thanks, Nancy. And we'll catch up again next week. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Take care.